Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession this morning comes from Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 through 13. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask for a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I put the Lord to the test. Then he said, Listen now, house of David. Is it too trivial a thing for you to be try the patience of man, that you will also try the patience of my God as well? These words spoken by the prophet Isaiah to King Ahaz, come at a time of great distress in the nation of Judah. They're being besieged by the king of Aram and the king of Israel, Rezin and Pekah, respectively, who had attacked the city of Jerusalem but could not conquer it. Isaiah and his son, Shear Jashub, whose name means a remnant shall return, were sent to Ahaz to tell the king that their enemies would not be victorious and to rest in the Lord for his deliverance. Instead of resting in Yahweh of hosts, Ahaz, as told in 2 Kings 16, sends his messengers to the king of Assyria instead, making himself a slave to their king, counting on his forces and surrendering the sovereignty of the nation of Judah to a foreign power. As we consider this account, we compare the situation in Judah with our own land and our own homes not besieged by physical armies, but attacked by ideologies and clashing worldviews. In the midst of this struggle, we are quick to count on our own strength, or in the case of cultural battles around us, we see the effectiveness of the enemy's tactics and we try to make them our own. Our attitudes and behaviors deny the deliverance promised by God in his word and try his patience by not trusting in him fully to provide for us in our time of need, as Ahaz did. As it says in Proverbs, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. Our lives need to be patterned by a reliance on our Lord, who has promised never to leave us or forsake us, rooted in prayer with thanksgiving, resting in him, to lead us through the trials that we face, knowing that these trials prove our faith and lead us to a life full of praise, glory, and the salvation of our souls. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins. Oh, come, let us worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, open my mouth and open our hearts that we may speak forth and hear and return your praise. Let none of your words fall to the ground, we pray, but plant them in, in our hearts that your fruit may grow there in our lives, in our families, in your church, in your world. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, here we are at week three of Advent. And once again, I'm doing a bit of a different thing today. You've got those verses printed in the bulletin. We read a few of them. There's a lot of them 
And what I've done is just take the next section of the, of, of the Oratorio, the Messiah, which is all scripture, and just uh, compiled together, and we're uh, reading those next. So just to orient you, if you didn't notice it already, uh, under the sermon outline, towards the back, you've got number 24. And those numbers are like the numbers, the, the song selection numbers of the Messiah, actually. So that's help, maybe helpful for reference. So we're going to go through, walk through ver, uh, number 24 through 44 there. So it's kind of backwards. You've got to flip ahead to go back. But that's where we'll be today. So notice something in these verses. The, and here's kind of the main point I'll just give you up front, as I typically try to do. And this was the genius of, of um, putting Handel's Messiah together, the words, the compilation of Scripture in this way. What it's doing is it's telling the grand sweep of Christ's history, starting with the Old Testament prophecies of his coming. Right? We already looked at those. That's number 1 through 23. Right up until John announces his arrival and points to him. Right? That was last week. Behold the Lamb of God. But then it continues through the suffering of Christ here in Isaiah 53, we read, and his resurrection and his ascension. And there's even more to come uh, yet at the end today and next week as well. So I like to do the old holiday mashup, I call it, and, and I, my assertion is that all the greats did it. And I would point to the Messiah as one example. This is a, this, when you celebrate one holiday, like Christmas, you ought to be thinking of all the holidays because they all touch on each other. So at Christmas time, it's a great thing to sing, Christ the Lord is risen today. Right? That, we all only think of that on Easter. But it's great to connect those because the incarnation without the resurrection, what is that? Or the resurrection, if there's no incarnation, what is that? Put them all together, mash them up. And that's what Messiah does. So we'll look today at, at some of that. And the theme here today is the suffering servant becomes the conquering king. That's the movement that we see in, in our texts today. From Isaiah 53, uh, the man of sorrows despised and scorned by men uh, to the end uh, where uh, the kings are um, brought to submission and Christ reigns over all the, king, the kingdoms of the earth. That, that's the broad sweep we're considering. So uh, Jesus came to take away the sin of the world, and the way he did that was taking on God's wrath for us. He suffered for our sakes. And here I'm just uh, expositing Isaiah 53. This middle section of the Messiah puts a bunch of scripture together that shows us Christ's humiliation and then his exaltation. That's another way to put it. That's how Westminster often puts it. So it goes right from the cross to the resurrection, to his ascension, to the gospel message going forth, to the nations resisting it, and then the kingdoms of this world becoming the kingdoms of our Lord. It's a glorious section. The, the music itself lets you hear the suffering of Christ, and then the glory of the ascension, and then the agitation of the nations at, at hearing the gospel, and finally the glorious hallelujah chorus that Christ conquers and wins the nations to himself. Now, when we start thinking about the suffering of Christ, we could, of course, go to the gospel accounts of the crucifixion. But the Old Testament also foretells the suffering of Christ. And so we read that in Isaiah 53. We could also read um, Psalm 22, and I'll actually try to read through the verses that we haven't read yet. So notice there in Psalm 22, uh, number 25. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. 
Notice that scorn right in the moment of the cross, right as he's suffering physically and, and bearing the weight of our sins, that the leaders of uh, Israel are scorning uh, that very Savior. It's, a, it's an astounding passage. So I want to just point out as we uh, consider also uh, Psalm 69 there, reproach has broken my heart, right? Lamentations, behold and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow. That's, that's a great verse to, to remember that, that there were many people in, in Jesus' day who were crucified. He wasn't the only one. But his sorrow was unique because he was bearing the weight of our sins. And, and, and so we consider that. And three ways I want to consider that, pause there a moment. Our guilt and God's suffering and uh, Christ's suffering and God's solution. And then our scorn for that. Uh, so our guilt first, notice uh, the, the phrase in uh, Isaiah 53, verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray, right? The, that imagery, I think, helps us a little bit. Our guilt is heavy. Uh, and if we really understood it, I think it would just crush us mentally. We, we, we only get a glimpse of what our guilt really is before God. But God gives us in his word this imagery that I think helps us, this imagery of thinking of sheep wandering around, <laughs> right? It's almost funny, right? Every now and then we see some videos on Facebook of sheep going all over the place, and then there's some comment about how, yeah, that you need, those sheep need a shepherd, don't they? Right? That, that's the idea. That's, that's uh, what's good about the sheep analogy is, is, is this. It's, it's kind of funny. They're, they're feckless. The, the, the point is they shouldn't be doing this. And what's good is it, it, it isn't like the shepherd can't straighten out the sheep. That's the point of, of that imagery, right? The shepherd's just shaking his head up in heaven, looking at his people, saying, there they go again. But he's not frustrated like he can't do anything about it, right? So the, the analogy isn't to make light of the offense against God. It's to point out that God can set it straight, and he's going to. We've gone astray like sheep, everyone, to his own way. We're a scattered flock. But the shepherd can get us back on the path. And he's going to. Just pause there, too, for a moment of a parenting application. Um, I, I think that phrase is just wonderfully rich. All we like sheep have gone astray, everyone to his own way. Right? We're all sinners, but we all sin a little bit uniquely, don't we? And, and parents know that with, with your kids. It, you know, this one kind of tends to do that and go off the path that way. And the other one, he tends to go off the path a different way and do that other thing. And you've got to be aware of those differences and where the sheep are tending to go. So, and it's also important not to, uh, when you have that, there, there can develop an, a dynamic where it feels like there's one kid who's always the instigator, who's always the problem, right? They're all sinners, and some, the way some children, some people, everybody, the way some people sin is less obvious. And it's less like an urgent fire you've got to put out. And wise parents will notice that and, and pay attention to the quiet ones who aren't raising a stink and make sure that they're not sinning in their own quiet way too. We all have gone astray, everyone to his own way. Our guilt, that's the first thing. And then Christ's suffering, of course. He bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. God laid our iniquities on him. And we tend to focus on that last one, God laying our iniquities on him. But there's a lot more in there. there there's more on griefs and on sorrow than we realize. 
besides the punishment for our guilt, there's all the cosmic effects of the fall that we suffer. The Heidelberg Catechism calls it our misery, right? That, which, is, which is bigger than just our guilt. It, it's a result of our guilt. But Jesus suffers all that misery too. He's borne our griefs and sorrows. Consider, uh, here's a list of my own that I put together on the spot a day or two ago. That Christ's earthly father dies early. His earthly brothers don't believe the truth like he knows the truth to be. Jesus gets hungry, tired, sick, downcast in soul. He probably struggled to make ends meet financially while working really hard with his hands. He and his family probably suffered injustice and oppression under the Romans. And again, looking ahead, Jesus was also the most misunderstood person in history. Right? He's accused of being a son of the devil when he's literally the son of God. He's accused of being a son of illegitimacy when his patronage was the purest ever. He's accused of false teaching when he was the truest teacher who ever lived. If you've ever suffered the frustration of being misunderstood by somebody, especially by God's people, sometimes intentionally so that they can feel righteous, Jesus knew that very, very well. Jesus knows what it is to suffer the miseries of this life. And he remained faithful. He remained faithful. That, that Suffering those miseries, that, that's never an excuse to anger or to apathy or any other disobedience. And Christ shows us that way. Of course, the suffering of Jesus at the cross was effective also to take away our sins. God laid our iniquities on him. He bore them, paid the price for our sins. He absorbed God's wrath fully. We call that imputation from 2 Corinthians 5. He became sin who knew no sin. Right? God puts our sin, our guilt on Jesus. And that atones. It deals with the punishment God required for sin. It sets aside God's wrath against us because it went against Jesus instead. So that's uh, our guilt and God's suffering, Christ's suffering as God's solution. Uh, the music of the Messiah, I encourage you to listen to this section. It's just glorious. It, it's kind of the, the, the section on all we like sheep have gone astray is just kind of bouncing around and it's so chaotic. Right? It's like, oh, bah, bah, we're going everywhere. And, and then the, the next line is, and he laid on him the iniquity of us all. And the music totally changes and it just becomes these long notes, slow like the weight is going down on Jesus instead of these sheep bouncing all over the place, right? The, the contrast is, is beautiful. The, there's a, a lot that is added uh, when you uh, listen to the Messiah. Anyway, our guilt, the, the solution was Christ's suffering. And then last, our scorn. That, that's in there, Isaiah 50, verse 6, Psalm 22, Lamentations 1. We've read all these already. As Jesus went to the cross, and on it, he was also derided. And in three ways. The, the leaders of Israel scorn Jesus at his trial beforehand. He takes a beating from hardened Roman soldiers. And on the cross, they mock him as powerless to come down. Since he obviously wasn't the Christ that he claimed to be. You can't do it. When he very well could have done it. And he stays 
there on the cross. Something important for us to learn as Christians who are maturing, uh, possibly particularly uh, for men, that, that there are times a godly man does not do what he could do because that wouldn't be the wisest thing to do. And Jesus bears the scorn. And at, at the risk of getting in your business a little bit, whenever you go your own way and do what you want instead of doing what Jesus wants, you are scorning Jesus too. We all do that. During and after the cross, many of God's people have scorned the suffering of Jesus. So there's that rebuke put in there. Now the next section we have is uh, Psalm 16, number 32, and then flip a page back. Uh, here we have Psalm 16 and then on to Psalm 24. You will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. One fascinating thing about the Messiah is that, uh, as I read it, that's the only verse about the resurrection in the whole thing. The resurrection of Jesus on the third day, I mean. That, that's the one verse we get. Uh, after all this suffering, the laying of guilt on us, that God doesn't leave him there in death. No, he raises him up. And then Psalm 24, we get a lot more on the ascension and on the angels in heaven worshiping the Lamb. Psalm 24 we read for the opening litany, remember? Lift up your heads, be lifted up, the King of glory will come in. So the point here is, this is talking about the ascension, right? Jesus ascending to the heavenly Jerusalem, Zion. And the psalmist telling her to receive the King of glory, to fling open the gates, to receive the exalted Christ who has been given the name that is above every name. God the Father, uh, move on from Psalm 24 to Hebrews 1. Uh, God the Father himself receives the Son. Uh, to which of the angels did the Father ever say, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. That's The context there is at the ascension, where Jesus is received by the Father. The Father approves of what he has done, sets him at his right hand. And all the angels are there too. It's glorious, Hebrews 1. Let all the angels of God worship him. And that's part of what I think the Messiah uh, music is trying to portray, is that angelic choir. It really makes you think of Revelation 5, and I'm jumping ahead. We're going to talk about this next week too, but it's a favorite passage of mine. In the throne room of God in Revelation 5, there are people casting crowns before the Lamb, and there are also angels and the cherubim and the seraphim and let me tell you, I went to the Messiah this past week. When you see a choir performing the Messiah, as I saw, and you get to this part, let all the angels of God worship him. And, you, and you've got a hundred or more trained human musicians dressed for honor and beauty in their tuxes and gowns, straining to give praise to the Lamb. You, you start looking around for the other non-human choir. Because there is one. We pour thousands of dollars into singing scripture well at an oratorio like that. We get up early on a Sunday and get our family ready, and we drive a ways to assemble with the earthly choir. And sometimes we wonder if it's worth it. We wonder if it's worth it. Are you kidding me? Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches, 
I'm getting ahead of myself. That's next week. Just remember, as we try to worship Christ as best we can right now, there are angels praising him in heaven. There are angels among us. Now, that feels like the end of the story in a way, right? Jesus has conquered death. He's paid for our sin. He's risen to heaven, ascended back to the Father, worshiped by the angels. Happily ever after, right? Well, no. What about what's going on here on earth? What happens right after the ascension? There's a lot more. So we read on. And here we're at, now I need to find where we are, uh, number 36 and 37, Psalm 68, right? We've got uh, first the ascension once again in verse 18. But then the, uh, I forget the guy's name, Jennings, was it, David? Jennings, who compiled the text. He geniusly puts this um, verse 11 in there next. What happens after the ascension in Scripture? Pentecost. The Spirit comes down and the apostles preach, right? So verse 11, the Lord gave the word. Great was the company of those who proclaimed it. In the King James, it's great was the company of the preachers. There's a company of preachers who are sent forth, starting with the apostles on Pentecost, but throughout the book of Acts and throughout history up until today. That's the story of what's going on now. You see it in Acts 2 through 4, the apostles preaching, the first nation, Israel, some accepting, uh, most resisting and rejecting the message. And then Psalm 2 is especially striking. That comes uh, in a few moments there. You, You have Isaiah 52, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Right, that, that, that's a, it's a poetic way to say we really need to um, honor and give all uh, energy and support uh, to those who are bringing the gospel to the nations. Their sound, verse uh, Romans 10, their sound has gone out to all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. It's glorious. Uh, you know, as we think about that, we only ever tend to see one or two pastors preaching at a time, right? So, I mean, there are a few occasions, I just saw in the paper recently that the, it was Vatican II's 60th anniversary or something. So they had a picture of all those bishops sitting in the main nave of the Vatican. That's, that's pretty impressive. That's pretty cool. But we don't see that kind of thing very often. We tend to visually only see one or two pastors preaching at a time. But imagine... I, I tried to think of the number. What, what would it be? Is, is it hundreds of thousands of, of pastors around the world that are preaching the gospel today? Is it, is it more than a million? Probably. I don't know. Imagine them all standing before their flocks every Sunday all around the world, like it's happening right now, proclaiming the word. Great is the company. And we don't think of that. We only see our one little slice of it. But the word helps us to see what's going on. Christ is sending forth his word to the nations. So Psalm 2, moving on from there, is especially striking. We sing it often. What's the response? The rulers of the earth deliberate and decide together to break God's rules, his commands. They hear about how Christ has come, and they say, no, not for me. They, um, in this, in our own country, they did it again just this past week with the same-sex legislation that they passed. That's an instance of Psalm 2 taking place. 
Let us break their bonds in pieces. There, there, notice is capitalized T, the father and the son. The, the, the rulers of this nation and of most nations want nothing to do with God's ways of living and want to reject it and go their own way. So I'm not big on conspiracy theories, but it does say here in the King James that they conspire together against the Lord, right? That doesn't mean that there was some big secret cabal or plan, I don't think. It just means that most rulers and elites independently want to reject God and rule on their own, and every now and then they coordinate to do so. And that's what we see often. That's what really fires us up and frustrates us often, isn't it? And that, that's something we have to pay attention to, that, that culture war going on, we call it. But we also need to take it easy. Because when you read the whole grand sweep of the history, and you read on in Psalm 2, verse 4, God sits in the heavens and laughs at these puny rulers who think they can defy their creator. <laughs> A big belly laugh that's dismissive. What do you think you're doing? Not that they will never cause any harm or destruction. They do. But that isn't going to last. And sure, God's going to give them enough rope to hang themselves with to show them how rebellious they are. Our highest rulers are arduously endorsing sodomy and perversion these days. But we are not Americans first. We're Christians first. So when America officially turns away from God, as she has, that does not mean that the world is doomed. America is not the last best hope for the world. God's ruling king, the Messiah, Jesus, is. And his spirit turns hearts however he wishes. And so we pray for that, we work for that, and we hope for it. That's the idea of Psalm 2. The, the gospel has gone forth to all the nations. They're being discipled. There is much resistance there. That's the story of the last 2,000 years. Right there are summed up in about six verses. That's That's glorious. Well, uh, on to the last one. And here, notice, uh, I, I guess I'll say this so I don't forget to say it because I don't think it's in my notes. Uh, we all know the Hallelujah Chorus, right? It's the most recognizable, the famous, most famous piece of uh, piece within this Messiah. Here where we've come to it now, the last one, number 44. You'll see the three verses there that comprise it. And just before I go into it, notice what comes before. And we listened to this on the, on the drive-in today. So it's a piece and a verse that we hardly ever think of and usually don't want to read in church because it's too imprecatory, right? Psalm 2, verse 9. What, what do we say, what does Jennings put right before hallelujah for God reigns? He puts that, a, a prophecy that the Messiah will break those rulers with a rod of iron. He will dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. And then he goes to Revelation 19, which I did not think to find the right verse, but the context here is really significant. Revelation 19, what's happening in that chapter? Verse 11, I saw heaven opened and a white horse, and he who sat on him was faithful and true. His name is the word of God. The armies in heaven, white and clean, follow him. Verse 15, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that he should strike the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. It's all direct reference to Psalm 2. It's intentional. 
And the point, uh, many interpret that as a, a picture of the last 2,000 years as well. Right? Christ has gone forth by means of the great company of preachers, and the sword of the word of God is striking the nations. It's, it's bringing the word to the nations, convicting them, bringing them to submission to God. That's what is going on. And throughout history, that's what is happening. And then, as a result of that, as a result of God's grace, Revelation 19, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord. Here we have the victory of Christ on earth over the nations, gloriously proclaimed. All that resistance we talk about in Psalm 2 will come to an end. Jesus shall reign wherever the sun runs. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess. Now, whether you interpret this in the post-mill variety, that the earthly kingdoms will uh, become Christ's before he returns, or if you're of the ah-mill or the pre-mill variety that says these kingdoms will become Christ's at his return, uh, the point is, it's going to happen. Right? And we don't need to argue about it so much as we need to act like it's true. Act like it's true. And we need to sing that it's true. That's what Handel got done. And that's what we do here every week. And so we sing. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. That's, that's a great phrase. What does that mean? He makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness. That, think about that. He's going to make the nations show forth his righteousness regardless of their resistance. That's the core of the gospel right there. It's the outworking of the atonement and our sanctification and the discipling of the nations, the evangelization of the nations. He's going to make the nations show forth his righteousness, not our abominations. That contrast. And we need to believe that good news, even as we see on the news uh, the opposite happening uh, in the moment. So the Messiah here tells, we've come to the end, that the Messiah tells the grand sweep of Christ's history. Starts with the Old Testament prophecies of his coming, his suffering, his resurrection and ascension. And now for the last 2,000 years, the gospel going forth to the nations. It's resisted, but Christ ultimately is victorious. The suffering servant becomes the conquering king. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks. Uh, for your word, as we've been considering various verses, uh, we thank you for uh, forefathers in the faith who put your word uh, together in appropriate ways that help us to see the whole story in a nutshell that we can handle and grasp in our minds. Uh, Lord, uh, your plan becomes a bit clearer. Your grace uh, shines forth all the more. Your power uh, over the nations who are just a drop in the bucket uh, becomes clear to us. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us faith to believe this because it is often difficult. We see so much resistance, so much rejection and denial of you and of your Messiah and of your truth and of your word. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would encourage us, strengthen the feeble hands and the weak knees and help us to stand fast in the faith to live like 
this is true. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, who is the ever-living Word. And we sing as he taught us to pray. Under the Lord's table, it seems appropriate today to consider, as I often do, the past, the present, and the future. Right? This supper is a, a feast of remembrance. We remember it from the past, the, the suffering servant who has paid the price for us. We remember in the present uh, what is going on as well, that we are communing together with Christ, with the church uh, militant and the church triumphant in a mystical way we don't comprehend with the whole angels, uh, all the angels in heaven. And also in the future, we should consider and remember uh, the victory that Christ will be bringing, the feast of the Lamb that is to come. Uh, and I would urge you to put faith into each of those slots, past, present, and future. We need to have faith uh, that the past suffering of Christ uh, was effective to atone for our sins. But we also need to have faith that we are communing with, fellowshipping with the body of Christ here and now. And that will change how we interact with one another as well. And we need faith in the future. Uh, how Christ is going to uh, win victoriously. And that will change our future plans for how to live and how uh, to bring the gospel to the nations. So let's trust God in all these ways, and especially as we come to partake here at the table, we want to have uh, a living faith that God has given to us these signs and seals uh, to truly communicate to us the presence, uh, the life of Jesus Christ by faith. So, uh, the body of Christ, broken for you. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I dot com. Again, thank you and blessings. Blessings.